Hello and welcome to One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide business leaders with the latest commentary on evolving business and economic news that impacts healthcare, business, and the workplace. In each episode, our One Digital advisors will be addressing evolving coronavirus situations, translating them for employers so they can be proactive for their organizations and develop their business planning strategies. Welcome everybody to our session today. This is our COVID-19 employer advisory session for, gosh, it's already Wednesday. I can't even believe it. So for Wednesday, May 20th, um, we're going to talk about a little bit about benefits compliance and really talk about the reshaping of the employee benefits landscape. We've had so many things going on. So I thought I'd cover a few different things today. Um, You know, our agenda will include the following topics. I'll spend some time on some of the COVID-related changes that we've had. We'll talk about the couple of of laws. I'm not going to cover everything from the very beginning because it's too vast. We have a ton of um, resources for you and on-demand recordings of all the basics of these laws. But what I want to bring you today are the updates to the laws. And so this will include um, just a quick update on the Families First Coronavirus Response Act. That was the first one, the Stimulus One, I'm counting them now. Um, that was the first stimulus bill that came out, so I want to give you a little bit on that. Um, the, the next thing is on the CARES Act, which was our big $2 trillion bill. One of the biggest things was the Paycheck Protection Program. We've got some new updates we're going to spend some time on that just came out over the weekend. And then I do want to talk about overall, just from an HR and benefits administration standpoint, there's been so many changes and so many things happening. What do I really need to think about with my benefit plans? What are some of these changes that have happened? And then what are the implications? Oh, by the way, remember the ACA. We had that that too. Um, We still have obligations as employers for our health plans. And so just kind of maybe doing a little straightening up on that. Uh, The other thing is I'll take you through just a little bit of legislative regulatory update. I do have some Supreme Court updates of the four pending cases that we've been talking about uh, for the quarterly my quarterly legislative and regulatory updates for quite a while. So I want to give you some new developments in those areas. Also, um, really, uh, the legislature, the lawmakers, and the regulators have been so focused. They're very focused on, obviously, everything that's going on right now. But I do want to kind of preview just a little bit about the HEROES Act and talk about that a little bit. Um, And then just basically where we're spending time uh, still in advocacy for you all and what are some of the things that we're working on. Um, last, um, yeah, by the way, there's there's still an election coming up and what does that mean and what do we know and what should we be thinking about? So I'll give you a little bit about that as well. So with that, um, I'd like to jump into our first section, which was really talking about some of these changes uh, from a compliance standpoint on COVID-19, the um, two particular bills with regard to, with our bills, I should say laws now, with regard to that. So um, moving on, if we kind of move here, we kind of look at this timeline when we think about um, 
when we think about COVID-19 and the government's response, we saw that, um, you know, there was legislative action that started as early as March 6th. It provided the funding that we have, um, you know, to really contain the outbreak, allocating, you know, $3 billion for vaccine research. And this was the very preliminary bill that started and kind of passed unanimously uh, or nearly universal um, uh, proponents for it. And so that passed fairly quickly, but really on the heels of that, then the president declared the national emergency. And so that put so many other things into action. On March 18th, we saw this first of the stimulus bills pass, which was the family's first coronavirus um, response act. And so that passed through both chambers and was signed by the president. And this gave us that, um, you know, our first real, um, directives as employers about the fact that we we need to start thinking about paid sick leave we have and in this emergency paid sick leave what do we do for folks that that are exposed to coronavirus how do we handle that and so it really did just focus on paid an, an emergency paid sick leave and an expanded family medical leave act as schools were closing etc so provided that relief um, mandated that employers provide that relief with only a few minor exceptions and like i said um, earlier there is a full on demand um on our on demand um session on our hub that you can listen to that in its entirety. But today we're just going to talk about a couple of updates that have happened since then. And then on March 27th, of course, the the most expansive bill to that point, which was the third bill, or the third stimulus, as they call it, um, the um, coronavirus um, aid relief and Economic Stability Act. So there are so many acronyms. They're getting longer, too, by the way. <laughs> and um, and so this um, $2 trillion bill, this really gave so much more assistance in so many different areas. You know, the different titles covered different things, from healthcare workers and supporting them to the um, economic infrastructure to the uh, supporting uh, businesses to and of course the health to the healthcare workers and also to the health industry and treatment um, and diagnostic testing for the coronavirus and then <clears throat> with uh, additional funds running so the big part of that which we've been dealing with so much is the paycheck protection program which was a big piece of that in helping businesses stay afloat and keeping people employed and so with the funds running out for the PPP um, they uh, Congress came back with the stimulus 3.5 on the 24th of April and added um, additional funding to that program specifically. So it didn't add funding for everything else that was in CARES just for the Paycheck Protection Program. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so we saw some additional monies added there. Loans uh, opened back up because they had the money had been exhausted by that point in time, and so there is still money left, and people still applying at this time for those. And we'll spend some time on the Paycheck Protection Program. On the heels of that, we now have um, the Heroes Act, which we'll talk about. So. I always have to look at this because this it's so long. The Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act. See, I, those acronyms are getting longer and longer. So the HEROES Act comes up now as passing through 
the House. It is sitting at the Senate, and it's not likely that this is going to pass. We'll talk a little bit about that. But this $3 trillion bill covers so many things. It covers much more than the First CARES Act did. It enhances some of those coverages and adds a lot of new um, expenditures as well. So we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit during the session. So with that as backdrop, I want to talk a little bit about the fam- Families First Coronavirus Response Act, which was that first one. So it had these two components to it, right? We had the, the um, emergency paid sick leave, and then we had the extended family medical leave act. So in the um, emergency paid sick leave piece, um, and this is coming, here we go. Um, so this, uh, it, it provided this two weeks of, of sick pay. So basically whatever people's normal wages were or, or what they, hours they normally worked uh, uh, for two weeks. So it's up to 80 hours that they get 100% of their salary reimbursement up, into, up to that maximum of 511 per day. Um, it obviously had to be for very specific uh, uh, COVID type related issues, whether you were quarantined or you were diagnosed and a health professional told you that you needed to self-quarantine or whether you had signs and symptoms and were um, going for a diagnosis, um, reduced pay under that sick time if you were the caregiver for somebody in one of those situations. Now, the extended family leave part allowed... Um, coverage of you would get the two weeks sick pay, but at two thirds uh, pay, but then you get an, uh, you were eligible up to an additional 10 weeks of family medical leave. But this particular provision, this 12 weeks in total is only available to um, those individuals who cannot work or telework because they're caring for children because their school's closed or their daycare provider is unavailable, those types of situations. So a couple of, um, so much has been out there and we've covered a lot of different things with with regard to this, but there are a couple of questions that have emerged recently or that we're getting over and over that I thought I would just add here as by way of update. So the first one is really this, you know, are, are qualified sick leave wages and qualified family leave wages taxable to employees? So as people are starting to claim now these reimbursements through their quarterly tax filing, they're trying to figure out what what do I get? You know, what, what qualifies? What do I include? Um, so uh, as far as this particular question, this FAQ that had come, um, that come, came to the, um, the DOL and to the IRS, the question here about whether qualified sick leave and qualified family leave are taxable to employees, the answer is yes. So under, um, under this law, it does not define wages any differently than in the tax code. So the tax code defines wages to include, um, uh, to include gross wages. You know, it's compensation. So employees have to pay their Social Security, their Medicare taxes, et cetera, out of those wages. They are not exempt wages and compensation generally are, um, for those services, are, are taxable and also um, subject to federal income tax. And the, this particular law did not exempt anybody from that. So, that it, so yes, those, um, those wages are still subject to those payroll taxes. And then the last one was whether or not 
um, whether or not um, employers' um, sick pay plans can substitute for the sick leave paid or paid sick leave provisions here. So, um, you know, a lot of employers have their own paid sick leave programs. And so when this new one came up, a lot of people were confused about, well, I already have a sick pay plan. If I already give them, you know, up to two weeks of sick leave, do I have to give them more? And the answer is yes and no, or it depends because um, under the emergency paid sick leave. So if you, if somebody's taking off for that first set of reasons that we talked about, where they're diagnosed or they're part of a quarantine, et cetera, then yes, they have to, um, then they have to give this sick leave in addition to whatever they normally provide. So there is, um, there is no, um, dispensation there. You can't substitute one for the other. They have to be, a, uh, be, they have to get this paid sick leave in addition to whatever they would normally be eligible for. Under the extended family medical leave, it's a little bit different. So the first two weeks of the family medical leave isn't really paid under the family medical leave, it's sick pay. And that there can be a substitution. Now, the employer can't mandate the substitution, but the employee can choose to substitute their vacation or PTO or other uh, and get their full salary rather than getting this two-thirds salary that they would be subject to here. But this is an either-or, so it can be a substitution and or basically the employer's sick plan and this uh, two weeks would run concurrently, so they wouldn't get two additional weeks. Okay, so just that quick uh, clarification on those two items. Um, I want to jump into the Paycheck Protection Program. So under Title I of the CARES Act, keeping workers paid and employed, um, the Paycheck Protection Program kind of emerges as its premier lifeline for, for businesses. So it provides 100% guaranteed coverage um, or covered these covered loans for businesses and self-employed individuals. And these are done through the Small Business Association. Um, credit unions, banks, local lenders were eligible to provide these loans um, during the period of February 15th of 2020 through June 30th. So these run through June 30th as well. Now in order to be eligible for the program quick review here, this applies to businesses whose principal uh, place of residence was in the United States or is in the United States or its territories, it operates primarily in the US. Um, or its territories, they have to be authorized in the state that they're doing business, uh, make a significant tr contribution to the US economy um, or the use of American products. Um, and, um, and so there are some very specific stipulations. They also have to have fewer than 500 employees. And so the counting includes um, every head, basically you're counting every single person, including if you, have, you are an affiliated, uh, if you're affiliated with other businesses, you can't count and aggregate everybody. If you have businesses overseas, you count all the foreign employees as well. Um, so you're counting everybody, domestic, foreign, full-time, part-time, temporary workers to get to this 500 number. There was a 
an exception made for um, franchisees and um, um, businesses that are in the the hospitality, if you will, or food industries. And so um, they can be 500 by location, okay? Um, now, the terms of the loan, um, and again, this is quick, there, we do have more um, specifics on this. And this whole section, there is a, there will be a, available to you on the hub, um, a full piece about loan forgiveness. And um, there's a number of different articles about up with more details. So if you're looking for more things. Um, but the term of the loan is predominantly made up of um, the anticipated monthly payroll costs and what you're going to for a short period of time, which is an eight week period. And the program limits the usage of the loan of those what you use that loan for in the forgiveness time to maintain your workers, really focusing on those payroll costs, any balance owing after your loan and what's forgiven, then um, turns into a two-year loan at 1% interest rate. Now, the loans are available through, um, like I said, through the small business um, uh, associations, so the SBA, these credit unions, banks, and they started on April 3rd and were available to small businesses and self-employed people. And then uh, beginning um, on April 10th to sole proprietors and independent contractors. The um, As we know, the PPP and other SBA loans, um, like the emergency disaster loan advance, um, they, they didn't have funding. And so the extra uh, stimulus that came in the 3.5, the extra 484 billion gave a little bit more, um, more funds here to this particular program. So um, some of the challenges, although this is like a, this really amazing program, right, that um, has vast amount of, mo of money that's been available to keep uh, the keep businesses afloat. There's been, there's been some challenges with it too, right? So a number of challenges out of the gate. So we have this great 2.3 trillion bridge for businesses to kind of exist over this time or help them to bridge this time um, while there's shutdowns, while, you know, people can't work, the people are, have kids out of school and all these different challenges with um, the situation at hand. They've been given the, this money and it favorable terms um, and promise that part of it, we're not even going to ask you to pay back. It's going to be forgiven. Um, so this has been a really great thing, but um, the, there's been a number of challenges. You know, the, the first, first challenge in implementation was really the short time frame. The law was passed on the 27th of March and the SBA had to start taking applications one week later on the third. So now while they knew it was coming, they didn't know it was coming for that long of a period of time. So really getting everything in place and getting the lenders in place. So that was the interesting part because now you have all of these lenders that had to be approved to dispense the funds, take the applications, approve them, get them to SBA to get the funds um, done, I mean, that's a lot of things to orchestrate in a small period of time. So um, as a result, you know, the lenders couldn't help you, but 
you know, confused during that time and trying to figure it out and who do I lend to? And they had way more applications than they could have accommodated in that short amount of time. And so the natural tendency was, hey, here's a bunch of people we've already loaned to that we know about. Let's, that's easy. We don't have to do as much work. We can check off the box and um, get those pushed through as quickly as possible and then start working on people that we don't know that we have to get, gather more information on. So um, that was part of the issue and all the documentation headaches that went into that. On top of that, um, not all the rules were released out of the gate. So not everybody really understood how to calculate how much they could get, what they could, you know, all of what they could use it for. And it was a little while later when we received the interim final rules that kind of answered the did this q a and gave a lot of answers but since then daily checking daily um this is what our all of us on our compliance team do is uh kind of go out there and troll for new information because it isn't made public. It's not like, oh, here's the next, you know, piece of information. Here's a new FAQ. Here's this. It's actually not that way. You have to actually be pretty vigilant and go in and find stuff. So, um, so we've been doing that. And, and that also makes it a little tough for everybody to stay on the same page. But given the short time frames, that's really what's been difficult. And the biggest piece of missing guidance was especially on the loan forgiveness. So most people want to know, well, how much can I borrow? But then of what I borrow, I want to maximize what I don't have to pay back, right? What doesn't have to be forgiven. And so that's been a huge piece. Well, you know, looking at this day in and day out and watching for all these changes, um, I, I like to say that in the dead of night, <laughs> surprise, we get that loan forgiveness. Um, it came late Friday. I don't know whether it was late Friday or early Saturday. Um, sometime in there, we um, we did get some guidance. Now, it wasn't given in the guidance form. It was just in the application. So it was always the intent that you get you, you – made an application to get the money, but you also have to make an application to request the forgiveness piece. And so that's what, what in fact was released was this wonderful application, <laughs> how I get my loan forgiveness, right? So beside the favorable terms on this 1% one per, uh, 1 interest for two years, this forgiveness piece is huge. And so what we see here is that, um, you know, People want to maximize this forgiveness component, um, which is really uh, the, the expenses that are paid in the first eight weeks following the receipt of the loan monies. So as long as you as the employer are using these funds primarily to pay for payroll costs and avoid reductions in headcount or salary, as this separate forgiveness application walks you through all that, it helps you determine the loan forgiveness amount. So according to law, there's three things that can reduce how much um, loan forgiveness you get. So you take your total expenses that you've paid in that, there's probably four really, but there's, um, you take the total expense expenditures in that first eight weeks once you get the loan proceeds and um, Obviously, if you don't use the money for the, couple, the the only things that it's allowed to be used for, that's a problem. But assuming that you're using that for the four things, and we'll go through that you can use it, it for, um, you, you should get all that, the expenditures you pay in that eight weeks back, with the exception of 
there is a reduction if you reduce your headcount, you know, so you have a reduction in force, you reduce your salaries of certain individuals, uh, or you disproportionately, the expenses you pay are disproportionately for non-payroll versus payroll. Remember, this was part of Title I of the CARES Act, which was to keep people working and keep them paid. So, um, so the law in the April 2nd interim rules really provided the basics, but this really filled in the blanks for us. So let's dig into um, the very specific uh, rules that, that go into this. So the basis, uh, if we talk about really the basis of loan forgiveness, a couple of things, a couple of clarifications come out in this um, particular application and in the, in the instructions. So the eight-week period begins the day the funds come out to you. So that's when the clock starts ticking and it ends 56 days later. So if you get your funds on April 20th, then your covered period or the CP, that's how, how I'm going to term that from uh, in, in here so I don't have to keep typing covered period. But so during this covered period, that would run starting Monday, April 20th when you got your funds and it would end 56 days later, which would be Sunday, June 14th. Now, one of the big issues for that I've been getting tons of questions on from all of you is what do I do with my payroll period if it doesn't start on April 20th? Like, what if it starts a week later? What if, do I change my payroll period for this time? How does that work? And so they did address that here. And they said, you as an employer have the opportunity to either use the covered period or to designate an alternative payroll covered period. And this alternative would begin the first day of whatever the first payroll is after you get your cash. So after the loans are, loan monies are dispersed to you, whatever your very next payroll period is, you can start the clock for that eight week time and that date. So here it would run from whatever that payroll period is and 56 days later. So for example, if you got your funds on April 20th, but your payroll period starts on April 26th, you can start your clock timer on April 26th. Okay, and then that would run 56 days up to that Saturday, June 20th. All right. So that satisfied a lot. That was a huge amount of questions that I was getting there. The next piece was, well, how can I creatively use these funds in the best way for payroll? And I was getting a lot of people asking the questions about, well, can I prepay some stuff? Can we pay bonuses from another period? Uh, can I pay some of my retirement uh, matching? All of these questions. And so that came up about how, you know, what are really eligible expenses um, when I'm talking about payroll costs. And so they did make these definitions. And so it's really important. The law specifically says that the charges or the expenses that you make have to be both incurred and paid or incurred but not paid, going to be paid shortly. So they've defined that now. What does that mean to us? So incurred means the day the employee earns pay. So incurred means they have to have earned their pay in this eight-week period. Paid means it's the date the paycheck is distributed or your ACH is initiated. So they're actually being paid within that eight-week period. And then the, the other thing would be incurred but not paid in the last payroll as long as you pay it um, 
before the next regular payroll period. So um, they're kind of giving you those parameters. Again, you're not going to be able to prepay expenses for later in the year. That's just not going to happen. Um, so if they haven't earned those dollars, you can't pay for it in the eight-week period. They ha it has to be earned. Um, and then also, um, it it would have to be paid in that period, but you have that little leeway there for that payroll time at the end, okay? Um, the Does the alternative, um, thanks Margaret, I'm just noticing your question here. Does the alternative apply to both bi-weekly and semi-monthly? I've heard it has to be bi-weekly or more often, and yes, there was something in the FAQ about that, that it was, um, more often than bi-weekly. So I'll, I'll, that is, um, and I, it's escaping me at this current time. If I grab my hands on it before the end, I'll let you know. Otherwise, it is um, in the, in the write-up that I did. I'm just, but I believe it's, I believe it's more often than bi-weekly or more often is what it was. Um, Thank you. Um, okay, so let's jump to payroll costs. So what we knew about payroll costs, these were all the things that were given to us in the interim final rule. It's compensation, it's cash and tips, it's payment for vacation and family leave, allowance for separation of dismissal, so things that are in your severance agreements, um, payment for the provision of employee benefits, group health, uh, for group health care coverage, including insurance premiums, retirement, and the payment of state and local tax assessments taxes assessed on that, that compensation. Well, there were a lot of uh, remaining questions for us in each of these categories. We've been getting some things. So here's a couple of clarifications that came. So on the cash compensation, this would include um, gross wages, tips, commission, paid leaves, and the individual cap um, is an for any one person that um, it makes a hundred thousand or more. So really, what you can claim in for this eight-week period is no more than fifteen thousand three hundred eighty-five dollars for any one individual, or which would be, um, you know, what this what the hundred thousand allocates down to for an eight-week period. So it just goes on in the directions to make sure that you don't include any more money for any given person than that. So that cap's going to apply. Um, the other thing that we've gotten tons of questions on is what can I count for my health? You know, this payment of the provision of employee benefits, it's so nebulous. So they really did clarify here. And some of it's what we thought, some of it was a little bit different. So this is employer contributions only for and only for health insurance period. So there's no other product lines involved, and you cannot include any pre- or post-tax contributions from your employees. Retirement costs much the same. It's employer contributions only, and it excludes both, both pre- and post. Um, now, on the tax side, taxes are state and local taxes assessed on employee compensation. That would be things like state unemployment tax. It doesn't include taxes that are withheld from employees' earnings. Okay? So that's those clarifications. So that cleared up a number of questions for us. On the reductions in staff, one of the, they gave, there's a, there's a lot of worksheets involved. That's why this is 11 pages to help you through understanding either the reduction in 
staffing or the reduction in salary and how that uh, for any individuals and how that affects you. So according to the law, there's, there's these three things. So we'll start with this particular um, reduction in staffing here. So how does this reduce my loan? So there's, um, I tried to make this as simple as I can in their non-simplified way, but there's this, there's this um, calculation here, which we knew about before. And this was um, open to us, where we would be taking the average number of full-time equivalent employees per month for our covered period. And now it's either the covered period or our alternative payroll covered period. And then we would divide that by the average number of full-time equivalent employees we had um, during the period of February 15th to June 30th of 2019, or the period of January 1st to February 29th of 2020, you as the employer can pick whichever is more favorable to you. So that equation we already knew about, and we already had this provision about seasonal employers. Um, if you're a seasonal employer, you could choose to use a 12-week consecutive period that's between that May 1st and September 15th of 2019, or either of the two periods above in that calculation that we just talked about. So the, that's what we already knew. The big question was, what is a full-time equivalent employee? That's the part we had no idea. What does that even mean to us? And we assumed, you know, a lot of the assumptions were, well, can't we just use what the Affordable Care Act defines as a full-time equivalent, right? Averaging 30 hours per week, etc. But the one thing that, that you know, I, I answered to a lot of our folks was that you know, that was meant, you know, that 30 hours was a, was customary to health benefit plans, not employment. So employment um, under the FLSA is always a full-time employee is considered 40 hours. So that was our guess. And that's actually what they did come back with. So here's how you calculate full-time equivalents. And they gave you two different ways to do that. So you can either do the actual, for each employee, you would take the average number of hours that they worked per week and you divide that by 40 and you round to the nearest tenth. And that tells you how much, you know, uh, one, whether that person's 1.0 or they're, you know, less than a person, they're 0.4 or whatever. Um, or you could do the simplified method where you would count each full-time employee working 40 hours as one, as one person. And then you would count um, everybody who is not working 40, averaging 40 hours as a half a person. So you could do just that simplified if that's much easier. And that's what's going to give you your full-time equivalents for both of the periods in that equation above. And that should tell you what percent of, of the loan is available. So if it comes out that, you know, your average full-time employee, uh, full-time equivalent employees is less than what it used to be in either of those two periods, you're going to get something lesser of the loan. If it's the same or greater than it was before, there's going to be no reduction to you. So there's a couple of exemptions and exceptions to this. So there is a full-time employee exemption that's listed. So they came out in some guidance um, in one of the FAQs, and they've incorporated that here and actually beefed it up a little bit, where you don't have to account employees for whom you made a good faith written offer um, during the covered period or this alternative period, and the employee declined. So you made an offer of... Uh, employment to them and they've declined they're not gonna um, come they're not gonna join you in, in the workforce 
or you try to hire them back and they're not going to um, accept the position. So that won't count against you. If somebody was fired for cause, that won't. These are some of the other questions that I got a lot. Well, what if somebody had a performance issue? You know what I mean? Why would that count against me? So um, people fired for cause, anybody who voluntarily resigned um, or requested and received reduced hours, those you don't have to count either. Those um, full-time equivalent employees are exempt you know, that won't count um, against you as long as um, the positions weren't filled by a new employee. So you don't get the benefit of saying, oh, and I have a new employee and I won't count this other one. Um, if you, so if you only get the exemption if you didn't fill that position, if you did, the numbers make up for themselves and so you don't need the exemption. Um, and then the other thing is there's an exception, there's a safe harbor. And the safe harbor basically says this, if um, you're, you would be exempt from the, this reduction in staffing, if you, if the, you as the employer reduce your headcount between February 15th and April 26th, and then you restore that number to as much or greater um, no later than June 30th. I've gotten asked, does it have to be the same person you're hiring back? No, that rehire provision is basically just numbers of people. So um, again, this full-time equivalent number when you do the, when you um, use the equation in the first section. So if that reduction is really just from that particular period of time, that February 15th to April 26th, and you restore by the June 30th, um, <clears throat> as compared to whatever it was on February 15th, then you'll be exempt from any reduction in this area. So that's what that was. Um, most of your salaried employees, okay, um, are considered full-time, but their standard hours are set at 37 and a half. How should we proceed to calculate? Yeah, that's such an interesting one. Um, so you're going to have to use the hours of 37 and a half, um, you know, but it should wash because you're using that for everything. But you'll have to just add everybody up and divide by 40. And that's going to give you your full time equivalents over your whole population. And you'll do the same thing for the prior period. So you're going to be looking at it in the same way. Um, but you'll need to use that for that calculation as it exists. Okay. Um, so and then what about people furloughed, right? So if people are furloughed, if you're not, pay, if they're not being paid during that time, then yeah, um, typically they don't necessarily count against you, but um, well, they could count against you. So yeah, that's a reduction in force if you if um, if you're terminating them if they're still on payroll. Um, I'll have to look and see what they say about the furloughed people. Um, I'm not sure if that was addressed very specifically about the full-time equivalent. Are they still holding a spot? Are you still paying for them? Um, again, this is a reduction um, in employees. So if you're paying for them, I would say yes. If you're not uh, paying for them, then I would say no. But um, let me double check. We'll double check on that and, and add that to the FAQ. That'll come out after this. Okay, so salary, um, now we have the other one that was salary reductions, right? So this is um, same kind of thing. We knew this, uh, this average annual salary, looking at somebody's average annual salary. Um, if 
you have reduced a person's salary by 25% or more, then there could be this reduction. So there's a couple safe harbors here. Um, if their annual salary um, for the period of February 15th through 26 is less than um, what it was in um, February 15th, and you restore that money by June 30th. So this is kind of the same thing as the headcount, but this is on the salary side. Um, if you do the same thing, then you will be exempt here, okay? Um, and then per person reduction calculation, this is kind of how it looks. It looks creepy. Um, so it looks, it's probably harder than it is. But you're, you're just trying to figure out if if I've reduced them for, by more than 25%, what does that look like? And then there is this percentage over the eight weeks, how much do they really get less? And that's what's going to come off of, um, that's what's going to come off of your loan piece. So there's a worksheet for that. But again, it's that 25%. And you don't have to um, include anybody whose annual salary for any pay period uh, their salary for any pay period when you annualize it is more than a hundred thousand was more than a hundred thousand in 2019. You don't have to include them in this whole exercise. They're just they're excluded. Um, a couple of other clarifications that came out. You know. Um, you can apply for this uh, using paper, electronically through the vent your vendor, and you can start anytime after the covered period expires. Um, there are certifications which kind of caught up everybody on the application part, and that's why people were sending, um, you know, were, are getting money back now, as you've all kind of seen in the news, because there was this uh, certification which we talked about in the last advisory session about uh, saying, hey, yeah, I need these funds to continue operation. And you, if you had really had access to other funds and didn't really need this for ongoing operation, that was uh, problematic. However, they've come out with, um, you know, they did come out with the clarity that um, if your loan is under uh, under $2 million, they're not going to audit you. They're going to figure out that you, you applied in good faith and they're not going to worry about it. Um, over two million, there will be an audit. So I thought it was important to look at what are the certifications on the loan forgiveness. And here's the things you'd be certifying: that the funds were used for the eligible PPP purposes, um, payroll costs, business mortgage interest, um, you know, business rent and lease payments, or business utility payments, and also. Um, that you did all the worksheets, you included the reductions, um, more, not more than 25% of what you're asking in forgiveness is, um, is for non-payroll costs. Um, let's see. Uh, also that um, if, you know, you used the, the monies for other purposes that they could take um, uh, enforcement action against you that you are required to provide the documentation that um, is listed in the application, and also that the SBA ret uh, retains the right to come back and ask you for more information. Now, on the documentation side, there's a couple different things that they provided. They said, okay, there. Are, first of all, there are documents you do have to submit. So on the payroll side, you've got to uh, you know, have copies of your bank account statements, payroll service reports for that covered period or the alternative payroll covered period, tax forms, um, canceled checks, um, 
anything, uh, your Form 941, uh, any other applicable tax forms or supporting documents uh, for employer contributions and employee contributions that show that for health insurance and retirement plans. As far as the full-time equivalent headcount, you really just got to show your math. Um, so you would need to also include any of the payroll tax filings, wage uh, filings, those types of things. And then on the non-payroll side, really just verification of the, of the fact that this mortgage interest or the rent or the lease agreement, those were all in place as of February 15th, and then any canceled checks for the amounts that you're claiming. Um, all of your, um, on the, there's, a, there's an additional category, and they said, you know, here's stuff you should maintain in your records in case you're audited. Um, and that would include really figuring out all these schedules that are attached to, and your math on the schedules that are attached to the application. Um, and then also the listing, again, of each individual and their salary, denoting anybody over the 100000 documentation for that. And finally, that... Um, any of those job offers you made to people, written declinations from them not taking it, or any uh, anybody you know requesting to um, uh, reduce their work schedule. So, um, so um, uh, so good question. What if you never terminated or furloughed anybody and you still have the same people? Do you have to bother with the reduction in calculation? Well, the rec it won't apply to you, but I would still fill out the worksheet showing it doesn't apply to you. Um, I think that's going to be really important because I think everybody is going to feel like, hmm. Now, some of the documentation should be able to easily show that, your wage uh, statements, et cetera. So, but I still would show I have this many and this many, you know, on, on the worksheet, you know, so I would still keep all that intact. Good question. Okay, so um, the other couple of updates, we have the employee retention credit, and this was one where um, this was one of the other ones that was in the CARES Act that we have um, we've gone through. And this was eligible for any size employer. So it's not just that over 500, et cetera, um, but any size employer. And um, it really is limited to only um, employers that are affected by a shutdown or a partial shutdown or where their gross receipts have significantly been re reduced. And so you can kind of see that. Now, the basis for the credit then really depends on a full-time equivalent calculation of whether you have 100 or more employees. Now, this full-time equivalent is based on the calculation from the Affordable Care Act and that 30 hours. So even in the same law, now they have two different um, references for full-time equivalent, but this particular provision does use that full-time equivalent from the Affordable Care Act, the 30 hours. So if on average you have um, less than 100 employees and one of these two things happens, either your operations are fully or partially shut down or your gross receipts have declined like in number two above, then um, whether your people are working or not, you're eligible for this credit. For those over 100, you're only eligible for the credit on the people who are um, the credit's only based on, on wages um, for the people who were not working. So if people are working, you're not going to get uh, credit for them. Um, the actual credit is the 50% of the first 10,000 in wages for these people that that's incurred between March um, March 13th of 2020 and December 31st of 2020. Um, 
Then um, also there's some, you would include this in with your tax, normal tax filing. If you have um, something to claim for Q1, just add it to Q2 because this came out too late. But you would file with your 941 if you want um, an advance on the money, then you use um, Form 7200 for that. But there were a few um, clarifications that did come out in, an FAQ, in FAQs um, on this particular employee retention. Now, first of all, they did do some clarification about what does it mean to have a full or partial shutdown, what counts as a shutdown. So governmental orders are what's eligible for the employee um, retention credit. So those include an order from the city's mayor stating that all non-essential businesses have to close for some specified period of time. Um, a state's emergency proclamation that residents have to either shelter in place or uh, for some time period or other, or um, other than residents who are employed in essential business that travel to and from work, everybody else has to stay home an order from maybe a local official imposing some sort of curfew on residents um, that operate, uh, that impacts business operations, the hours that that business can operate for some specified period. Essential businesses who can't operate due to suspension um, can also be eligible. Now, the, the businesses not eligible would include orders that really don't restrict commerce and trade, like, oh, there's social distancing. Well, it do, you know, doesn't mean you can't operate. Now, um, orders unrelated to COVID-19 also shut down orders for some other purpose that wouldn't be included in here. Or if the employer just decides they want to close and there really hasn't been this governmental order. Now, so those were the things that were really... Um, clarified here. Now they did go on to say like, let's say that um, you're a restaurant and while you can't have, um, you, know, you can't serve people in your restaurant, you're still doing takeout, you can still be eligible for the employee retention credit because there is a, that's a partial shutdown. So that would be allowed. Um, the other thing that they talked a little bit about were affiliated businesses. So um, if you're considered a single employer entity and any, like you have multiple businesses considered a single entity, um, but one of the businesses takes the employee retention credit, no other entities can take it. So I thought that was very interesting. And it has to be allocated proportionately to the members of the aggregated group. So, um, so basically, I think that you have to aggregate that employee retention credit. <clears throat> They're not going to allow all the individual entities to, to adopt that. Um, the other thing is on the qualified wages, we did talk about this a little bit in the, uh, our last um, document included more on the qualified health expenses. This is, a, this is different here than what we saw under the Paycheck uh, Protection Program forgiveness component. So this particular um, qualified health expense includes both employer and employee pre-tax portions of premium. So that's different. Um, and um, it would also include, you know, HRAs, contributions to HRAs, individual coverage HRAs, your flexible spending accounts, but not any contributions to HSAs, MSAs, or uh, uh, quasi-HRAs, the qualified small employer HRA. 
for fully insured, you would use uh, COBRA premiums or whatever the average premium rate is for all the employees. On self-funded, you would use the COBRA premium or reasonable actuarial method to figure out that cost. <clears throat> now, the interactions, there was some clarified clarification coming out about all the interactions of the loan um, and uh, with all of these other components. Like, you can't get all of the tax credits all the time, right? Um, so, some of these disqualify each other. So, you are typically not eligible to take this employee retention credit if um, you're taking the PPP loan. So um, unless during this whole hoo-ha with the paying back of the money, if you paid it all back by Monday, which was the deadline, um, as it would be counted as if you never took the loan out at all. And so in that case, you then could be eligible for the employee retention credit and take that. Um, otherwise, you can't, you, um, if you had a PPP loan, an existing loan, um, under the Paycheck Protection, you, you're not eligible for this particular uh, employee retention credit. You're also not allowed to claim the same wages under any of these programs. So let's say you have sick paid wages under the Families First Coronavirus Act, and you claim the reimbursement um, on your 941 for Mary because you paid her sick, sick wages. And you claim it under, under, on the 941 under that family's first. Well, you can't claim her same wages then for purposes of either the employee retention credit or for the paycheck protection loan forgiveness. You wouldn't count it three times or two times even. Okay, so you have to be careful about that to make sure you're not counting the same wages for more than one tax credit, okay? Um, all right, um, let's look at some other components. Remember the Affordable Care Act? <laughs> In all the midst of, midst of COVID, we kind of forget that there's other stuff out there, right? Um, and all of our normal obligations and all the things that have happened this year that are going to affect us coming forward as we start thinking about our health plans. So if we remember way back, um, we did have the repeal of both the... Um, excise tax on the sale of medical devices. We also had um, the HIT tax that was removed uh, effective next year. So when you start to think about your 2021 plans, um, they will not include any up uptick for um, uh, this HIT tax because that'll no longer be assessed on insurers. Also, the Cadillac excise tax is gone as well. And so that's something that we don't have to think about as we're entering into, um, uh, into next year and thinking about the next plans. We, what, what, we, what do we have to think about? What about Pecori fees? Unfortunately, the trade-off with uh, the um, continuing resolution where the ACA, uh, these tax provisions were repealed, was that they actually extended, the PCORI fees were supposed to be over. And this applies to health insurers and self-funded plans. And so this patient uh, 
the Patient Center for Outcomes Research Institute was funded by the ACA and all health plans. So that would be your insurers, your fully insured plans, the actual carriers would pay that and the self, uh, self-funded self plans need to pay it too. Well, that was supposed to end. Um, unfortunately, this got um, a shot in the arm for another nine years um, as part of the trade-off to getting rid of some of these other things. And so you'll see that um, that filing is coming up at the end of July. So far, we do not have any extension. Now, we've seen extensions, and we're going to talk about that on a million other provisions, but we haven't seen any here. And I will tell you on the advocacy side, we just, um, as part of uh, work that I'm doing with a committee at uh, the National Association of Health Underwriters, we have been putting together all of these um, letters to the regulators about things they need to think about. And this was in there of saying, you really should think about um, extending this and giving some dispensation to to people. If you're going to, you know, have all these other things extended, you should extend the court fee uh, timing and payment as well. So we'll see if we see some sort of delay, but we haven't yet. And then um, as far as, um, the interaction of the Affordable Care Act. Important things here are that if you've got, um, you know, if you have, um, are using this look back measurement method when you are determining your affordability and who gets coverage um, under the Affordable Care Act, um, if somebody's in their stability period, and as long as they're still employed by you, which means they're either still actively working and they're on a furlough and they're not terminated, um, you have to continue their health care coverage through the end of their stability period. And so that's really important. Now here, leaves of absence don't count for or against you. Um, they actually don't um, impact affordability. So you shouldn't have to worry about that. Um, on the affordability side, but you do have to make sure that in the, if you're using the quick measurement method that you have, you are extending coverage to people, even if their hours are reduced or they're furloughed, if they're, if you're still, if they're still working for you, you still have to um, provide coverage through their stability period. Um, I feel like I missed one. Nope. Okay. So a couple of things that I've just tried to make a couple charts that you can kind of keep with you of all the things that have changed. So um, the first thing is the over-counter medications and menstrual products that came out um, as being covered. They're now qualified medical expenses. People can claim under their FSA, their MSA, or their HSA without having to have a prescription. So people can keep all the receipts and document that, get their reimbursements for expenses all the way back to January 1st of 2020. Um, the high deductible health plan, we've had a number of different notices that came out and provided relief and one keeps adding on to another. So hopefully I've included all of the things here um, so that you can kind of see it at once, but any expenses for testing or treatment that are COVID related, um, if they're paid prior to the deductible and you have this high deductible health plan coupled with an HSA, typically you can't pay any uh, charges unless they're preventive care and approved without satisfying your deductible first. Here now for all of your COVID testing and treatment, those can be paid without having to satisfy the deductible and not disqualify the individual from being able to contribute to their HSA bank account. And so that applies to expenses incurred January 1st of 2020 and, um, and all plan years beginning um, 
on or before December 31st of 2021. <clears throat> as far as the testing goes, the CARES Act does require that um, that group health plans, all group health plans, health insurance issuers, um, anybody offering group or individual has to provide that without cost sharing. So qualifying coronavirus uh, preventive services really means any items or services or immunizations that are intended to prevent or mitigate the virus. So um, this includes evidence-based items or service that are in fact with a rating of A or B. That's what's considered preventive. And so immunizations fall into that. Telehealth services also fall here as well. Um, typically those are considered other health plans and would normally disqualify. So eat, um, a disqualify somebody from contributing to their HSA because they can't have another health plan and telehealth is another health plan. Um, here, if telehealth is being used and for something COVID related like this and, and um, it's uh, the services are done prior to satisfaction of the deductible with no cost sharing, this will also not disqualify the HSA plan. <clears throat> the other thing we've seen a lot of are insurance carriers who are allowing premium payment delays. So you know, they're giving you kind of extra grace periods to pay, maybe special enrollment periods if you want them to allow people who didn't elect during open enrollment to come in um, and who don't have coverage. Um, that would be up to you as an employer. <clears throat> and also they're uh, extending some premium rebates. So a couple things I want to um, talk about there. First, um, claim payment uh, has to be, uh, typically is going to be suspended if you haven't paid your premium. So while you might get, and that'll depend on the carry, while you might get um, longer to pay the premium, they may be holding people's claims. So that would be something to um, investigate with your carrier. What happens if I take advantage of the extra grace period to pay my um premium, what happens to my employees' claims? Just so you can set expectations with people. Hey, it's going to take a little longer to get your claims paid or whatever whatever the case may be. Um, the other thing is on the rebates for, um, for people who are receiving, um, you know, um, some, some sort of rebates on their premiums. They're getting um, money back from carriers. Uh, you need to you need to think about whose money it is. So under ERISA, you have some fiduciary responsibilities, and you need to make sure that you understand whether that is the you, the employer, your money, or whether part of that money belongs to the employees. And so, if employees normally contribute to premium and have contributed, then Part, part of that money is theirs, and those would count as play on assets so that you, you must use them for um, the sole benefit of those participants. And so you need to think about what, what you're doing with that money. Maybe give everybody a premium holiday, et cetera. So use the kind of rules we've been talking about since 2014 and 15 when the medical loss ratio rebates came out from the carriers. What do you do with that money? It's the same rules that would apply here. So you want to be thinking about that as well. Okay. Um, a couple of other um, changes. We've just seen a bunch of new things come out. Um, and, uh, 
you know, uh, folks on our team did a, a nice write-up that's also in the hub on some of these extensions. So um, the department's saying now, okay, if all these things are extended and we're trying to make things more workable and people are having money issues, let's extend some of the deadlines for the plans. So the Department of Labor came back, came out um, just recently, extending <clears throat> HIPAA, COBRA, other timeframes that, that are applicable to group health plans. So they issued a final rule that basically affects participants' right, rights to health care coverage, their portability, their continuation, and um, you know protects them against claim denials during that time. So there's a, a whole FAQ, and basically what they said, it requests... Um, if people request, you know, HIPAA special enrollment, so HIPAA normally you can, um, if you have a, uh, a marriage or a birth of a new child, um, things of that nature, you can jump in the plan mid-year. Um, COBRA notices and elections have to come out timely and people need to elect timely. Those are all within the law. Claims have to also be filed in, and then you as employers have to um, have to also um, provide for summary plan description, any material modification and coverage, um, and uh, adverse claim appeals. All of those rights and duties are all part and parcel of offering health plans. Those have all been extended. And so the interesting thing is how they extended them. So effective March 1st, um, they basically have extended them through the end of the outbreak, actually 60 days after the end of the outbreak period. So the extension of these timeframes um, start March 1st, and they go till after 60 days after it, the announcement comes out that it's no longer a national emergency or that this national emergency period is over. And so that, uh, you know, they call this the outbreak period. Now, in the final rule, they used April 30th with, as being the end. Well, obviously, we're past, well past that. So, but you can use that there are uh, examples to fill in any date and figure out how that 60 days works. So um, on the HIPAA enrollment, um, if people are requesting enrollment, they have a longer period of time. They can, um, you know, they can um, go all the way to, again, to this uh, ending time. So for example, if, if the national emergency ended on April 30th, let's say, um, an employee would have all the way to J June 29th, 30 days um, to enroll their child in coverage. Um, under COBRA, um, you've get the, you get the 60-day component um, afterwards. And so um, if somebody is, you know, they terminate, they leave, they're eligible for COBRA, basically they have all the way till 60 days after the end of this outbreak period to actually elect COBRA. Um, and you can't, you can't terminate them in the interim. So they also have this extended period to pay their COBRA premiums as well. So this creates a lot of, um, a lot of questions. And so we, we just um, were are finishing this document to the regulators too about what happens? So what happens to, so claim payments typically are going to be suspended during this time. How, what if they never pay the, the premiums? 
How long do you give them to pay the premiums? So there's a lot of questions that have to do with that. Um, so um, this will be interesting now this second when we get to HEROES Act, they're trying to address it there. The, uh, on the heels of that, we also had a COBRA model, new COBRA model notice come out, and that really actually doesn't have anything to do with COVID, to be honest with you. It has to do with helping people understand what their choices are when you're offering them COBRA. So there was a lot of confusion has been about how does Medicare work? Should I pick Medicare? Should I pick the group health plan? And then of course, under Medicare secondary payer rules, you as an employer can't entice somebody not to choose COBRA or to choose or, you know, or to pick Medicare over your health plan. So there's always been this kind of like, what can I tell people? What can I not? And so now that they did a nice job in this new model notice kind of addresses it for you. And so it does walk through in the model notice and tell people, hey, you have a couple of choices here. You can either stay in your group health plan and pay 102% of the premium. Maybe you go buy individual coverage in the marketplace. You might be eligible for a subsidy then too. Or maybe Medicare is a better way. And oh, by the way, if you don't enroll in Medicare on time, here, here are some of the issues or monetary penalties that you might incur. So it does address all those things. And I think that um, those are very helpful. <clears throat> Somebody, Carol, you're asking, can voluntary FSA deductions be suspended or changed since we've had months when we couldn't go to the doctor or at least have the entire remaining balance, if any, not subject to annual carryover. I'm so glad you asked, because let's look at that. That is actually what we were just going to talk about next. So awesome job, Carol. Um, so we just had these two notices you'll see at the bottom, and those will be links in the slides that you can go uh, directly to those notices that really made some extensions under the cafeteria plans. And so basically, um, employers can now um, amend their plans if they want to and allow um, people to make either a new election because they never jumped into the plan in the first place. They can modify an existing election. They can revoke their existing election. Whichever combination of those you might want to choose, you have the option now of adding that to your plan, even if they don't have a, a valid change in status under the cafeteria plan rules, that you can just give them this election period. And so you can kind of look, look at that, and uh, it would apply to all plans including your FSA, so you can uh, allow people, and um, including limited purpose, your dependent care plans. Um, you can allow, um, that's only allowable in this calendar year, and it would apply, you, you know, when you put it in, then you can have it apply to um, charges back to January 1st. Um, and you know, this is provided that you let everybody know too, and then you make notification. And then you have to just get in a plan amendment, uh, amend your actual plan document no later than the end of 2021 um, in order to be compliant from that perspective. So you can make those changes. And then on the carryover side, so they just increased the, you know, they escalated the amount of carryover from 500 to 550. So you can amend your plan to include the new amount if you want that. Um, <clears throat> but also, um, there is, uh, so that would be the carryover. And on the grace period and carryover, you can now amend your plan to allow the carryover for a full 12 months. And so um, that, um, and that amendment you'd have to do before the end of the plan year, but um, that's a really great, um, great um, option. Um, 
depending, yeah, you can do anything separately. So um, Kim, great question about, you know, do I, you know, if I do this extension, do I have to offer for my health FSA and the dependent care and for my health plan? You could pick any, any, some or none, any of those. You would just have to be very specific in, in your um, plan, but don't forget to amend your plan very specifically to what you're looking for. Okay, so let's take a quick look on the legislative and regulatory side. We've got a couple of updates from the Supreme Court. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. You're going to have these just as background. Um, this kind of walks you through the whole constitutionality challenge of the individual mandate. We, we've spent a lot of time over the past years talking about, um, you know, the individual mandate. Obviously, that individual mandate um, got removed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and then everybody challenged and said, oh, it's no longer constitutional, because you said that the only reason, um, you know, was this tax penalty was why the individual mandate was constitutional in the first place. Well, you know, oops, sorry about that. I just jumped too fast for you. So the um, there's been some developments. So there's this decision to appeal. There was a decision to appeal, and then um, it went to the appellate court, and they said, you know what, we agree that um, the individual mandate is no longer taxed, so it is unconstitutional. And actually, you should look at the whole ACA. So. Um, Earlier this year, the Supreme Court said that they would actually take up that uh, that case and they will decide it and they confirmed that they would not make a decision this year. So we can expect to see it in June of 2021. But they're moving along um, that just last week, there was a whole bunch of interest groups um, and academics and people who filed over three dozen amicus briefs last week about all opinions, um, all seeking kind of this reversal of the case saying, hey, you know, the individual mandate is severable from the rest of the ACA. The ACA should stand. Um, and so, um, you know, most of them feel uh, it is severable. And so we'll see where it goes from here. But we'll, we'll, that'll, that's still ongoing. So I want to let you know about that. The contraceptive mandate, again, this is a timeline. This has, you know, been an ongoing since 2012, even before ACA um, came into effect. And, um, We've had all kinds of groups that have challenged whether or not they have to mandatorily cover contraceptives in their health plan. We saw the Hobby Lobby rule. Then we saw other. Then we saw the regulators, um, you know, and the White House administration come out with regulations. HHS basically giving people dispensation, saying, "Hey, if it, if it, uh, you object based on moral grounds, you as an employer don't have to offer." Well, there was a stay put against that, and so this has kind of been in court. So um, on May 6th, the Supreme Court did hear the oral arguments, and so we should see something coming out of them, I would think, um, in the near future that gives us some um, decision about this. Um, it's on my list I, uh, to read about, you know, kind of what their thoughts were to get more insight, but just know that that's still an ongoing piece. Association Health Plans, I mentioned them here um, because there are a number of states that are coming forward trying to um, pass their own laws on this pathway too. So uh, part of President Trump's executive order was to expand Association Health Plans um, to allow for um, new ways that groups of employers and unrelated employers based on either geography or um, 
you know, they could, uh, based on geography or industry and trade, could come together, and it could even include sole proprietors. So this pathway, too, was a really new way, but then that was challenged in the courts, and then um, basically they stripped out the two things that made it different than every other association health plan has ever been, which was allowing sole proprietors to participate and allowing um, employers who didn't share the same trade or industry um, to come together and also to form for the purpose of insurance um, as long as they had one, you know, other substantial business interest instead of an association having been in effect for a period, of, a good period of time. So um, that was sort of um, not allowed. And then the DOL said, well, we're sorry if you form some of these, but we won't take any action against you. Just don't do anything. Uh, you know, make sure you can pay the claims, et cetera. Um, so you can kind of see all of these different things that happened from a legal standpoint. Um, one of the things that, uh, and the reason that I bring it up is that, um, you know, this is still ongoing and this may get overturned. So we're trying to watch this, but it could give coming forward some, uh, different employer groups a way to come together. Now, the last, uh, Supreme Court, um, piece is are these temporary risk corridors. So in a nutshell, when ACA was formed, um, the individual mandate went from medically underwritten individuals. So we either kept you because you were favorable or you were declined for the individual marketplace. And one of the pillars of the ACA was nobody could be declined. And the health insurance carriers said, well, then we're going to get all these sick people and how will we, you know, be able to pay all the claims. And so they created this risk quarter that for just a three-year period that would actually even out that liability amongst the carriers. So no one carrier would get more liability, you know, higher claims than another. And so through a series of events, basically, Congress never paid the insurers the money that should have been paid to the tune of $12 billion. So there was a lawsuit brought um, for this 12, actually, I think it's $12.3 billion. And, um, and that was, um, that was brought against, um, Congress. And so the Supreme Court did just um, make a decision in that one. And so they, uh, the Supreme Court held that these risk corridors um, and the statute created a government obligation to pay insurers the full amount that was set for in the article. And so, um, yeah, and the government can incur an obligation like that through a stat through statutory language. So they are going to have to figure out how to pay the carriers this $12 billion that they owe them. So I think we'll see uh, a few more things come forward on that um, and which carriers that affects, et cetera. And maybe that'll help our premiums coming down the road or the premiums in the individual marketplace anyway. Um, last, just a quick little statement on the HEROES Act. We I touched on that. So this... Um, this was the big new stimulus, stimulus four, I guess, um, bill that they're calling the Health and Eco Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act that came out of the House. Now, uh, Speaker Pelosi's bill, H.R. 6800, um, she advised the House members, think big. And of course they did. This huge $3 trillion package um, is 1,851-page bill um, with a 90-page summary. 
Um, but what? It, but it adds a few things that we care about, and I'll show you some of the things that are in here, and you can kind of read these. But the things from a health perspective, or the things I think for our clients most that they'll are are very interesting. Number one, it would cover 100% of the premium for those COBRA benefits. So as people are extending out and they don't have to pay for their COBRA for that huge period of time until the national, 60 days after the national emergency, it would provide subsidies for that COBRA premium. How is another thing, but it will do that. Um, It does have a whole new um, uh, $1,200 or $2,400 in stimulus, and a uh, second round of stimulus for everybody is in there. Um, it will include um, maybe an de- uh, increase in dependent care credit from 35% to 50 FSA, um, the full amount of $2,750 would actually be eligible for a carryover under this particular bill. Um, and then um, extension of the grace period is in this one too, but it's we're already there. Um, the let's see, the six hundred dollars for the unemployment would extend. Uh, it's supposed to end in uh, the six hundred dollars per extra six hundred dollars per week supposed to end in July. This will end uh, according to this. It would extend that to January. Um, all new round of. Uh, paycheck protection program money, a new employee retention credit would be included in there. Hazard pay, like a trillion dollars for hazard pay for frontline workers. Um, a lot, a trillion dollars goes to the state and local governments for doing a lot of those things. Um, so uh, there's also some additional funding items you can kind of see there, um, including like 20 to 25 billion for the U.S. Postal Service, arts funding, broadband expansion. So there's all kinds of things in this particular bill. The reality is that that is not something that the um, that will be looked at um, by the Senate anytime soon. Um, there's all kinds of, um, the House isn't even in session right now, but the Senate is looking at creating their own bill. I don't think, we're not going to see anything before June. They're kind of not ready to do that at this point in time. So we'll wait and really delve into details when we get a final bill that'll, that actually will make it through Senate as well. So I think there'll be a, a bit of, um, amending to either this or a brand new bill that'll have have to be looked at. Um, On the advocacy side, just a few things. I want to tell you we're still focused in in a lot of the same areas, looking at surprise billing and and eliminating that for um, folks from surprise out-of-network claims when they're either at the emergency room or they Doctors that they didn't get to choose, like the radiologist, pathologist, anesthesiologist, are out of network, but your hospital and your physician are in network and you're getting balanced billings. So we're still working on that front. I'm on a task force that that we monitor and work with uh, the states on that as well. Um, Prescription drugs, the cost and transparency and access. HHS is still working on a lot of programs in that particular area. Um, We continue to be a voice and working on, on those as well. Medicare, of course, uh, you know, treating COBRA's creditable coverage. We have bills um, and also getting rid of that Medicare observation status. All those things are important to us. We continue to try to preserve um, employer-sponsored, including kind of combating single-payer. We'll talk about a little bit. And um, on the ACA side, 
we keep pushing for uh, streamlining reporting, which, you know, the reporting season's over, but that's going to start again. And it'll be really interesting with all the furloughs and different things coming forward, what that might look like in 2021. And then health savings reforms, again, continues to be a focus for us in expanding and, you know, better use of the HSAs and using it for more items, which we did get some, uh, a few expansions, at least COVID related right now. And then, of course, we have the election coming up. And I don't know if we're thinking about that a lot, not. I mean, it's really hard right now because everybody's so into the health care issues. You know, COVID really has turned the world upside down. It's the unseen enemy that really makes us look at life and kind of liberty in this brand new way. And, uh, you know, in the face of this crisis, people are like doing things that they have never dreamed of or that they take for granted that things that are ending their normal routine and um, they're buying products they didn't think, they're shopping in a way, they're just going about life in a different manner. Now it's six months until the election, believe it or not, and clearly most people are focused on staying well and adjusting to whatever they're supposed to. But I think this impact is, you know, the, the healthcare, current healthcare, economic impact to the disease, its treatment, the shutdowns to businesses, how they're coming back to business, what will happen with the economy. All of these things are still in their infancy and will have a significant impact going forward. So thinking about it from a healthcare standpoint, like what should we look at? Um, definitely, we're, we've got to look at how our employer-sponsored plans are behaving, what will affect our rates coming forward, um, how, do we, how do we maintain that, how do we create stability, um, and, and, um, and think about what we offer and what people will need coming forward. We still have issues with entitlement funding programs. I, by that, I mean Medicare, Medicaid. There's been expansions and allowances through this COVID. Are they sustainable? We had financial problems um, coming into the COVID crisis with sustaining those programs. What's going to happen next? Those are struggling and still in crisis. So um, that's got to be looked at. And those should be things that you're looking for guidance on who's addressing those. Also, cost transparency, drug pricing, those are significant as well. That's a big cost driver. And so that's got to be a significant focus that you look at too. Um, obviously, the surprise billing, etc. we want to be looking at that. Um, and then also um, the overall cost of healthcare. So uh, those are the things that we really want to see addressed and in some sort of substantive way. It'll be really interesting how all the current issues of the day kind of fall in with that. Now, um, just quickly, you know, single payer, we talk about a lot of different things with single payer. There are these, you know, we have the ACA or some sort of replacement bill for that that kind of gives us all over private market um, methodology for covering people. Um, public option, on the public option side, this is the way that you want to kind of think about um, the public option is that this is a government-run program. Um, it's basically you're buying into Medicaid in the public option. So you what would happen, and this was part of ACA, there was supposed to be a public option plan that would run alongside of the private market. And so what it, it would be would be a subsidized 
um, government-run health plan, much like Medicaid or whatever, that would compete with the private market and people could choose between that. Now, the government would be doing price negotiations. So it wouldn't be necessarily on the same playing field as the private plans, but people could have the choice. So that's what public option is. Of course, we saw the Medicare for all, and since Bernie's not a candidate, we're, I'm not sure that that will come forward in anybody's platform. But um, you know, and it wasn't really Medicare; it was just a it was a single payer government run, um, and so you would have this one choice, um, and the cost would be paid not so much in for for, um, for service but in preparation for service, though, through taxes and other mechanisms. And then there's a Medicare buy-in, which just allows people at different ages to buy in. So when we kind of think about the candidates and we think about kind of where they are at this point, there's not a ton out there. There's more out there about Joe Biden and less probably from the incumbent president, but it's probably not really odd. So we kind of look at just a few things on the health plans, you know, the president will still look for is still looking to create some sort of large bill that will um, kind of replace or kind of be this ACA redo. Um, Joe Biden, if he's chosen as a candidate, then um, finalized as a candidate, then uh, it will be this expansion of choice and lower costs. But he's looking at introducing the public option. So know that that's the platform that he's really looking to um, to expand. And then price transparency, consumerism, accountability, helping rural America, all the things that kind of um, happened before um, and that he that that was the focus pre-COVID um, will continue. Additional tax credits on Biden's side um, and more premium tax credits for um, those uh, lowest income folks and middle class. Um, prescription drug, you can kind of see that this is pretty much the same other than um, Joe Biden's a lot more for negotiating on Medicare, uh, Medicare pricing. Um, that hasn't been the thing from the current administration. They want to stay out of it and let free market take care of itself, but create more competition. Um, uh, the Democratic Party is more about negotiating the prices for Americans. So it's two different camps. Um, and then um, uh, kind of some other initiatives, you'll see a lot of similarities here. Um, I give you kind of the links down here um, to chat, uh, to go out and take a look at some of these things that they're for as you start to think about this coming in. But I'm sure we'll hear more as we come into the end of the year. Now with that, I'm going to uh, thank you all for your time. Um, this has been great. Um, I know it's probably a whirlwind of information. So um, hopefully you've gleaned a lot from it um, or maybe have more questions. Please visit our hub um, to get more information and and to make sure that uh, you know you get the most up-to-date date news. Um, we have different um, other sessions like this that are recorded that you can listen to and other documents that you can take a look at. Plus, we've got um, a way for you to ask questions in there also. Thanks and have a great week. Thank you for listening to this episode of One Digital's COVID-19 Employer Advisory Podcast. There's never been a time more than now during which our commitment to standing as one with our customers and providing peace of mind is more important. We are committed to providing the guidance you need to make complex decisions, even in the most challenging times. For additional resources, thought leadership, or for the latest employer information related to the COVID-19 pandemic, please visit onedigital.com forward slash coronavirus. 
Thank you.